You know, over the past couple of years, we, we have all lived through a really intense season, life-changing, world-changing. None of us knew a couple of years ago when we were starting with this COVID-19 thing how life-changing it would be. But clearly, everything has changed. It brought personal tragedy to families. It ushered in an all-new political landscape, uncovering things that had been buried under the surface. All kind of economic changes that are still sort of the dominoes are still falling on all that with supply chain disruptions and everything. And then just the, the personal challenges that you and I have had to face as people, trying to figure out what life in, after, whatever COVID is going to be like. You know, I think it's true that sociologists and economists and historians will probably debate about the impact and effect of the pandemic for hundreds of years. Have you thought about that? Hundreds of years, they'll look back on the two years that you and I have lived through and point to them as the underlying cause for all sorts of things that really haven't even happened yet. And of course, the church is not immune from those questions. Even now, ministry leaders, pastors, church strategists are asking big questions about the post-COVID church. And they point to things like a rapidly changing culture that seems to have no room for historic Christianity. You look at a rising generation who, as much as we love them, are hard to understand. Can I get an amen on that one? Okay, my, my children are like aliens sent from another planet. And then there's the reality that many Christians who experienced a, a momentary or extended break from church haven't found it necessary to re-engage in their faith. And lots of people are asking what the future of the church is going to look like. Some people have even openly wondered if the church as we have known it for the past 500 years in the West even has a future. I wonder what you think. What do you think about the future church? Have you thought much about it? Have you allowed your mind to go out a couple of years or decades and think? You know, as a young pastor, I'm one of the youngest pastors I know. This is deeply personal to me because I, I look at your lives and how God's been faithful to you and allowed you to have a flourishing, long life. And I think maybe I've got 50 years left to serve the Lord in this church. What's that going to look like? What's the church going to be 50 years from now? Will we still gather in big public places? Will we become like the early church and gather in homes? Will pastors make a living being a pastor? Or will they have to pick up a trade or side jobs to make ends meet? You know, I'm asking all these questions, and I really have struggled. I've gone to conferences. I've read books. I've asked older, wiser pastors and ministry leaders, pick their brains. I've even experienced the existential dread that comes from asking big questions about life, and my wife has had to talk me off the cliff a few times. 
And so this, the next three weeks, I just kind of want to work through this with you and, and maybe allow some of my internal wrestling to come out so throughout the week you can give me some feedback over what you think. I want to be clear, I'm not, over the next three weeks, going to try to unveil some new methods or ministry models. And I'm not up here going to spin some yarns and introduce novel theology or doctrine. If I ever do that, y'all run me out of here as quick as you can, okay? What I want to do instead is just dive deep on the passage Joe read for us. Spending three weeks looking at this passage. Because I really do think it holds the answers for the future of the church. See, the church's future doesn't depend on our ability to keep up with the world around us or somehow modifying or contextualizing our message to every perceived crisis, crises out in the world. Our future faithfulness and fruitfulness depends on us remembering who God has created us to be to rediscovering and rooting ourselves, not in some future thing, but in an ancient identity. Peter lays out three of those identities in the passage. He, he lays out several, but I'm going to look at three with you over the next three weeks. The first is the church is a temple. The second is the church is a royal priesthood. And the third is the church is holy. And I believe if we will get our minds wrapped around that and allow God to work it into our hearts so it shows up in our lives, that we won't have to worry about the future. We'll be right where God wants us to be. And so, long introduction out of the way, today I simply want you to see that the future church must remember that we are God's temple built on the foundation of Christ to glorify Him. That's it. We clearly see it in 1 Peter 2. Now, Peter was writing this letter to a church not in a situation that dissimilar to our own. They were living in a world rapidly changing, and they had actually just entered into a new period of official state-sanctioned persecution. And so Peter looked at this church full of people who were asking big questions about their future, not just collectively as the church, but personally in their own lives. Their future as a church was at stake because their lives were at stake. And so Peter wanted to build into them some confidence. He wanted to encourage them, and he did it in two ways. First, in the very beginning of the book, he reminds them of the hope they have in Jesus. Back in 1 Peter 1, 3, one of my favorite verses of all time, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so he gets them to think long-term about their destination. Where are you headed, church? Well, you're headed for an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you by God. That when you die and you stand before the Lord, he will open up his arms and hand over to you all those spiritual blessings that he chose you for before time began. So he starts there, and that's a sermon for a different day. Then he gets to the reality of who they are now. Not where they're going, but who they are now. He wants to remind them that they're suffering for the gospel was evidence of their faithfulness to Christ. And so persecution and suffering weren't something to run from, but something to lean into. They needed to, to remember that they were distinct for a reason and that every time somebody cast an insult against them for their faithfulness in Jesus, they were blessed. They needed to wear it as a badge of honor and double down on their difference. 
And so he gave them these key markers of identity, the temple, the royal priesthood, the holy people of God. The first one is the temple. And so let's look at this. In verses 4 and 5, he says, you're a spiritual house. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Think about this. Peter looks at a church, I got to think, not unlike our own. A group of ragtag people from all kinds of backgrounds with all sorts of stories gathering together in the name of Christ to worship him. What he doesn't see are men and women struggling through life. He sees living stones, stones that are alive, being fit together by God into a wonderful, beautiful, spiritual house. By God's grace, this church was more than they appeared to the world. As in English, the Greek word for house, which is on your favorite Greek yogurt, oikos, means the place where a family or household lives, a place they live. And all throughout the Bible, the oikos and the oikois of the New Testament refer to the households of the people defined and represented there. But throughout Scripture, there's another way that this term house can be used. It's often used to describe a temple. And in the ancient world, temples were everywhere. In fact, you could go online and type in Google, as I did this week, ancient temple ruins. And you could look at them all. Amazing Luxor Temple in Egypt. Great columns left from where people once gathered to worship their god. Saw one called Bagan in Myanmar. These little brown stone temples. They are like tall spires. It's amazing and beautiful. Many of the ancient world's best temples, though, are lost to us, like the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, any place you went, any small village or any large city in the ancient world had temples. They were these places built to honor a god. And in them were armies of priests whose sole focus was to carry out religious tasks to bring honor and praise to their deities. Worshippers would show up with gold or animals ready to offer them to the god and receive from them favor and blessing. And they believed that the temple was the best place to do that because the statue of the god was there. And if the statue of the god was there, that meant the god was there too. And of course, the Old Testament has a lot to say about temples. In fact, the Bible begins with a temple. Many Old Testament scholars believe that the Garden of Eden, which God perfectly prepared for Adam and Eve, was set up to function like a temple. Because you got God is there, and so is his priest king, Adam, whose job is to work and to keep the garden, making sure that nothing unholy came into God's presence and serving him in worshipful obedience. He's called to worship while he works. But pretty soon, Adam's sent away from God's presence. He's banished from the temple, left to wander on the face of the earth. But God came to his people again. He called them into his presence, and he gave them instructions for constructing what he called a tabernacle, which was a mobile temple. 
And everywhere the tabernacle went, God's presence went. In fact, he said in Leviticus 25, 22, when he first lays out the rules for the temple, the tabernacle, that on the Ark of the Covenant, the gold-plated box that contained the Ten Commandments, there'd be a little place on top called the mercy seat. And he said, there I will meet with you. And so the tabernacle came to represent the presence of God to his people. And if they wanted to enter into God's presence and receive blessings from him, like forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, peace, they came to his presence at the tabernacle and brought an offering along the way. And over time, this tabernacle moves from place to place, first in the wilderness and then when they enter the promised land, until finally King David brings about great peace, peace on all sides from all their enemies, and his son Solomon is given permission by God to construct not a tabernacle, but a magnificent temple. A temple that's so amazing, people travel from all the world to just see it with their own eyes. The gold is magnificent, and it speaks to the world that God is there. In fact, the chronicler says in 2 Chronicles 7.11 that Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace. God was there. We know God was there because on the day that Solomon consecrated it in a prayer, the Lord descended from heaven in the form of a cloud and took up residence in the temple so that the priests weren't even able to carry out their work. But maybe you know that, that temple was destroyed. 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes in, burns it to the ground. 500 years later, King Herod the Great rebuilds it and expands on it. But that temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. And so you're left with an open question. If God's temple's gone, where is God? There's a really theological crisis that the early Christians had been prepared for by Jesus. He had a complex relationship with the temple. It's really captured well in John chapter 2 where Jesus goes in and in verses 13 to 17, he cleanses the temple. He fashions a whip of cords and goes in and runs the guys out of there and says, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. It says his disciples remembered that it said in the scriptures, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews who were there overhear him talking and wondering, what, what are you doing? And he says, hey, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they say, this temple took 46 years to build. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? But John tells us he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about, this is John 2, 21, the temple of his body. You see, if temples were the place where the God was present, where the God of Artemis, they believed Artemis was present, or whether the God of Yahweh in the Old Testament, they believed God was there. Jesus sort of upends it. If the temple was God's presence on earth, in Christ, God took up residence in a man, not in a building. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, Paul says in the book of Colossians. Jesus turned it on its head. It's not about a building it's about a person, that a person comes to experience the presence of God in Christ. And so the early church starts to distance themselves from temple worship. At first, they're gathering there for prayer, 
And over time, they start to gather together in homes. No problem if you were a Christian in Ephesus and you couldn't get to the temple. God is near and present to you wherever you are. And in fact, Peter says, the main reason you don't need a temple is because you yourselves are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house for God. If the temple represents God's presence to his people, and God is present in a way that nobody could have ever imagined in Christ, then what the scriptures teach us is that when we come together in the name of Jesus, he's here. Isn't that what he says in Matthew 18? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And he is among us by his spirit. You sense his spirit move. Maybe you're learning what that means, and you're trying to discover why it is that you feel drawn to church why it is that certain songs or certain things you read in Scripture move you on a level you've never been moved before. We call that the work of the Holy Spirit who's opening your eyes to sensing spiritual realities and is assuring your heart that God's communicating with you, that He's speaking to you. So that's a spiritual house at work. One commentator said, Peter's not talking about a spiritual house in that it's immaterial, that it can't be seen. But it's a spiritual house because it's being filled up by the Spirit. It's a place where God's Spirit is dwelling. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. He says, don't you, and listen, this, if Paul had been from Alabama or Texas, he would have said, don't y'all know that you're a temple of God? It's plural. Don't y'all know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? If any person then destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that's exactly what you are. We together are a spiritual house for God. We are his temple. His spirit lives and dwells among us. And if the church in the future wants to be fruitful, wants to experience all the blessings that God says he has stored up for us, it must be as we rediscover our identity as the temple of God. And that's hard. I mean, depending on what you value, you can find groups of people in the world that seem more significant than a church. There are certainly groups of people who are more intelligent collectively than us. I mean, think about a faculty meeting, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Wow, how, how intelligent. Add up all their IQs, it equals a billion, you know? And then you take us. And hey, man, God has to do some amazing work to get us through life. You're looking for people who are more financially secure or wealthy? Go to Wall Street. You're looking for people with better connections to the levers of power in the world? Nobody called me. And asked me what I thought. Asked me what I thought about the crises of our day. They didn't ask you. We're not well connected. We're not powerful, and it's hard to believe, especially about some of you. But there are groups of people more beautiful and famous than us. I mean, you, you take any sort of value system that the world has to offer, and the church is pretty far down the list, but you know there's no other group of people on the face of the earth who can claim to be indwelled by the Spirit and to be a spiritual temple. None. We are unique and set apart in that regard. And so we have to remember the church is a spiritual house, the temple of God.
However disappointing church people can be, however hard it is to live with each other, we can't but help to honor and esteem what God is doing here. This is his temple. This is his house. So that's who we are. But I want you to also see how we got there. How do we get to be at God's house? Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2.4 when he says that we're being built up as a spiritual house, but he introduces it back in verse 4. He says, coming to him, coming to him, you also as living stones are being built up. He begins verse 4 with a participial phrase which defines the verb of being built up. Having come to him, you are being built up. It's the condition or the means by which God builds us up into his house. We come to him. And who is him? Who is Peter talking about? You could trace it back up. You could look up into verse 3, and you'd see that he says that we grow up in respect to salvation if, in fact, we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And if you traced it up further, you'd see where in verse 25 he talks about the word of the Lord enduring forever. You trace that on up, you come to see that the Lord he's talking about, the one we come to, is the one proclaimed in the good news, the gospel, the one who's able to save us, and that's Jesus. Peter says we come to Jesus, and by coming to him, we are then built up into a spiritual house. Peter describes Jesus as a stone, and specifically a living stone, which, going back to my favorite verse, reminds us that Jesus is our living hope the one who's been raised from the dead and is never going to die again, the one who is secure in heaven and is therefore able to keep us secure. We don't come to a stone, and I think maybe what he'd have us think about, if we can shift the metaphor a little bit, we don't come to a dead monument, a statue carved from stone, lifeless, but one who is alive, one who's able to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish, and one who even shares his life with us, you also as living stones. He gives to us what is his by virtue of his resurrection. He's dead, but then he's alive, and whoever comes to him will never die, but will live forever. They'll have eternal life. So he's a living stone, but that's not all he is. He's also a cornerstone. That's what Peter says in verses 6 through 8. He quotes from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. This image and metaphor of Christ as the stone that people stumble over was one of the favorite metaphors the early church used to describe Christ. Everywhere in the New Testament you can find it. It even comes out of Jesus' own mouth. He even uses this to describe himself. The amazing thing, the ironic thing, is that as the cornerstone, Peter affirms that God specifically chose Jesus for his task. He quotes Isaiah 28, and In Isaiah 28, God is warning his people about coming judgment for their injustice and their hard-heartedness towards suffering. And he assures them that he's going to set up a stone in Zion. He's going to start something new. And if anybody will come to that stone, they'll be saved. But if anybody rejects him, they'll stumble over him and be crushed. And Isaiah, I'm sure, looked through time and longed to see who this stone was, or what this stone was. What are you even talking about, God? What stone are you talking about? But Peter confidently says, this stone is Christ. The ironic thing, of course, is that though God looked at him and saw him as precious and perfectly 
equipped for the task at hand. The builders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, wanted nothing to do with him, and they rejected him. And because of that, he perfectly fulfilled what the Scripture said. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And now, as God's constructing this spiritual house, he takes each one of us as stones that are alive, and he starts stacking them one on top of the other until he constructs for himself a perfect and beautiful spiritual house. But at the foundation of it all is Christ, the cornerstone. Cornerstone was chosen by ancient stonesmiths and craftsmen for its perfect 90-degree angle. It had to be 90 degrees because it brought together two connecting walls. Where the walls intersected, they had to come together just right, or else, as additional layers of stones were stacked, the walls would come out a square. So it had to be perfectly 90 degrees. It had to be flat and secure because every additional stone that stacked on top of it would inherit from it whatever angle was there. This was driven home to me several years ago when we were moving here to Luling, and we had to get our house ready to sell. And that's an incredible task. It's difficult for anyone, but I'm a chronic procrastinator. And so I had to get six years of projects done in three weeks. And so um, I took a couple of weeks before y'all gave me a couple of weeks extra to get here. And my church over there gave me a couple of weeks to, they paid me so that I could have time off to get my house ready. And, and literally, Aaron is over here laughing at me because I worked feverishly for three straight weeks trying to get everything done. And at the end of it, I was like, hey, look, I'm not going to get to that. It is what it is. And uh, probably lost some money, but hey, you know, you live and you learn. But one thing that I had to fix were these brick walls that were in our front yard. And for six years, I would go and rake leaves because we didn't have grass in the woodlands. You just had leaves. And I'd go out and rake leaves, and I'd re-stack all these bricks on top of each other. There were like three layers of bricks, and the top ones were always toppling over. But I would just scrape the leaves out and put them back in place. And the next month when I came out to rake leaves, I'd have to do it again. And so I decided that, you know, as a kindness to the next owner of this home, I was going to perfectly fix these brick walls. And so thought, hey, I'm just going to pile up the bricks and start from scratch. And I realized when I got underneath the bottom layer of bricks where the problem was, that all these pine trees that had been giving me grief and allergies for six years were also responsible for keeping this wall from standing up because their roots had come up through the surface. And that bottom row of bricks wouldn't sit flat on the ground. And so I couldn't just pile the bricks up and restack them. I had to dig down into the ground and cut those roots if I wanted that brick wall to stand. And that's what I did. Put in some gravel, and I got a little construction adhesive and a caulk gun, and I said, y'all are never falling down again. And I got that bottom row perfectly level, and I glued the next row on, and I glued the next row on top until they were perfectly flat. And I'm telling you, that's the problem that a church faces. So often we try to restack the third layer of bricks instead of getting down to the foundation where the real problems start. You think about what foundation churches might lay. The church is in grave danger of toppling over when its walls are built on a pastor's personality. That's just they are. 
however good he is or however good you think he is, he's not Christ. Churches are on shaky foundation when they build their walls on human skill and the collective ability of the people present. They're on shaky ground when they build their ministry and walls on human wisdom and what they think would work best. They're on shaky ground when they build on all kinds of affinities, you know, people who are interested in the same type of thing or have similar political viewpoints or ideologies. Churches are on shaky ground and their walls are liable to top over when they're stacked up on anything except Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the one who gives us stability and strength. His good news. It's good news that he came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross so that anybody who trusts him will be forgiven of their sins and live with him forever. That's the foundation. His finished work, that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that there's nothing left for us to do but trust and obey. His authority All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what he says. That's the foundation. His word. His spirit at work in us. Listen, if the church of the future hopes to accomplish anything good, it better have its foundation on Christ. And when it does, it will be able to fulfill its purpose. The why we're a spiritual house. We are a spiritual house to offer him sacrifices. And we're going to go through this at length next week. Let's read verse 5 and then we'll come back to it. He says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, Peter knew that all this building that God was doing wasn't just to build himself a monument but it was to receive glory and praise from these people. They were going to be priests who offered him spiritual sacrifices. And this priesthood concept is so important. I think it's going to be so important for our church, not just the future church in the abstract, but it's going to be important for us that we're going to spend all the next week looking at what it means that we are a royal priesthood. But today I want you to think with me about this spiritual sacrifice thing that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices that God accepts in Christ. See, Peter knew that the church had been called for a reason. He says it in verse 9, that you'd proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The church was saved for something. All these people weren't brought together and built into a spiritual house just so they could spectate. He knew they were called to participate. Not just to be entertained, but to serve. A temple is, after all, a place where you go to worship. You meet with God and worship Him there. And Peter envisions this collection of living stones being built up to be just the kind of place where you'd want to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Of course, the sacrifices Peter has in mind are totally different than the ones he grew up giving. He's not talking about animals. He's talking about spiritual sacrifices. 
the kinds of things that are pleasing to God. Christ has been sacrificed once. And so, like today, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not sacrificing Christ again. We're remembering the sacrifice he gave to Christ once for all. But that doesn't mean that God's not interested in sacrifices. Paul says in Romans 12, and maybe you want to flip over there. In Romans 12, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, when God thinks about the sacrifices he wants from his spiritual house, from his people, it, it, it's frustrating, isn't it? That he just makes it black and white. You wish there was some wiggle room in the whole expectation thing with God. But like I said last week, and like I'm probably going to end up saying forever, God wants you, all that you are. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He wants everything we've got, and he's worthy of it. But that's not all. He's not just interested in us. There are specific things that he's looking for. One person said he's talking about the prayers, the thanksgivings, the giving, the serving. In other words, all the duties of religion are offered to God as sacrifices. They're what we bring to him. When we come to worship, it's not to spectate, it's to offer to him everything that we have, all that we are, and we actually express that in some tangible ways. We sing praise. We lift up songs that magnify his goodness and excellence to us. They remind us of things we should have known all along, and we wish we had a thought of that this week when we were facing the things we were facing, but man, it's good to sing it together. That when my race is complete, it's coming to an end. One day it will end, but my lips aren't going to start saying something different. When my race is complete, my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That is, that's it. Singing praises to God. Praying. Confessing to Him our helplessness. Offering to Him all the things that we've got problems with and saying, hey God, here, you do something with it that acknowledges his greatness, that he's the only one who can save. When we give to him, like preachers always say, of our time, our talent, and our treasures, when we sacrifice what's precious to us to glorify him, we offer to him worship, sacrifices that are pleasing and acceptable. And if the church in the future hopes to do any good thing, it will be because it remembers that. We're here to glorify him, to bring him worship and praise in a form that he accepts through Christ. Because we're going to have temptations, like temptations to abandon Christ. That doesn't glorify him. It doesn't glorify him when we sink back because of the fear we have for the people around us and what they might do to us. It doesn't glorify him when we are wooed by idols, things that don't have eyes and ears and can't actually intervene in our lives. We're going to be tempted to give ourselves to idols. We're going to face temptations to Seek to use the church for our own ends, to turn up the place that God's called to glorify him into something that satisfies our needs and desires. But the church of the future can't lose sight 
of its God-given purpose. We can't let the culture define or determine the parameters of church or to allow the culture to define our mission. And we can't let cultural Christianity and unchristian cultures distract us from the truth. The church is God's temple built on the foundation of Christ to glorify him. And if any church seeks to do anything else, it has no future. Will you pray with me? And as you do, will you think about a couple questions with me?